Randy Tobler, Truth Warrior, Woke Destroyer, on News Talk STL. Watch us on our live stream using Rumble, Facebook, and Twitter. This is News Talk STL. How you gonna do it if you really don't wanna dance? By standing on the wall. Get your back up Welcome back to the program. Second hour of the Tobler Show today on News Talk STL. Glad you're with us. After the next break, we're going to be talking to Nick Schroer uh, and about why uh, things aren't getting done in the uh, in the Missouri Senate. Later on at 810, Cindy O'Laughlin on the other side of the divide among the GOP caucus. One of the issues that many of you, I think many of us watching the political scene in Missouri haven't been too happy with the lack of enough progress is education choice and this past week was national education choice week and joining us now is one of my favorite education choice experts in the whole wide world her name is dr carrie ingram she's with independent women's forum a senior um senior fellow there how you doing carrie thank you for being with me you bet great to speak with you this morning so it was an exciting week celebrating education choice, which is making some advance uh, in various states and I guess in various degrees, making its way through the legislative process in other states. Uh, what's your current assessment of the progress for education choice, true universal education choice across the fruited plains? Well, I think it's really important to look at what's occurred over the last two years as we talk about this current legislative cycle and looking forward. Two years ago, there was no state in our country that had enacted universal school choice. There was states with variety of different school choices, um, but they were only reaching a small population of children in those states. Well, in 2022, Governor... Um, Great. I'm sorry, uh, Governor Ducey in Arizona, he enacted the first universal school choice law. It was an education savings account, very robust. And um, that just really opened the door for other governors to see this is possible. Um, we can come forth in this post-COVID landscape where parents are upset. They've seen the teacher unions tactics. And we can get these things on a large scale across the finish line. So Arizona really set the stage gave other governors the courage to go forward uh, shortly after West Virginia followed. Then in 2023, eight more states joined in with this universal school choice. So as of today, there's 10 states mm. that all families have universal school choice. Well, um, most of those are Republican states uh, with that Republican trifecta. So at the time of passing, eight of nine states um, had the Republican trifecta, and then one did not, and that was um, North uh, North Carolina, but they were able with their House and Senate uh, to override the governor's veto there, who's a Democrat. But that just set the stage where with the 22 Republican trifecta states in our country, you know, out of the 10 states that have passed it, nine were Republican trifectas. It's put pressure on these other states to say, we don't want to miss out. Like our families are demanding the same thing. We better deliver. And so that has set the stage now for 2024 for these other states, um, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi. Um, also in there definitely would be Tennessee. 
Oh, how about it's Missouri? How about Missouri, Carrie? <laughs> Missouri? I mean, yes, there's there's a lot going on in Missouri right now. Um, a lot of infighting you've got there in the Senate, but um, Missouri as well. You know, their governor is behind this. Um, with it being National School Choice Week this week, um, he's really come forth to say we recognize that parents should have access to high quality education. And they've got to have choices. Um, and so his leadership's going to be helpful. Um, but right now, there's kind of some, a misplaced priority happening um, in Missouri with some other issues. Yeah, well, we're going to be talking to uh, representatives from both sides of the chasm. And uh, so, so say your prayers that hopefully we, uh, we can be a part of a conversation that leads to some real progress in that, uh, in that way. I mean, uh, I, a lot of folks that look at this, are uh, looking askance and saying, why is it that other states can do it, but we can't get it done? Now, one of the criticisms that comes largely from the urban centers, not only in St. Louis and Kansas City here in Missouri, and some of the other, uh, like Columbia is a very blue uh, area where there's opposition, and it comes from public school folks. I'm, I'm a product of public schools. My wife is. Our kids went to public schools. Um, my dad taught at a public school, but that was when public schools were different, and they truly served the people. They taught read and write and arithmetic. They didn't do revisionist history, CRT, DEI, woke, 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 transgender, whatever. Um, and things have changed, Carrie, and parents don't like it. Some parents do. But what those who oppose universal school choice constantly beat the drum of you're going to decimate. This will be the end. This is Armageddon for public schools. What does the record say, although it's early, on those, what, roughly, what, 10 states now that have uh, implemented universal choice? Have public schools gone the way of the dodo bird or not? Absolutely not. So there's um, studies that show consistently that when there's school choice, students that remain in the existing public schools in that same geographical area, that their learning goes up as well. And so it's just basic free market principles. You know, when students exit the public schools, it puts some pressure on them um, to produce better quality learning for students. Um, So study after study have confirmed that again, when there's an environment of school choice, in a community, you know, students going to different options, those students that remain in the traditional public school, their learning does go up. Um, So that's on one front. But then just looking, you know, financially at this, Arizona, for example, um, now under their Democratic governor, uh, Katie Hobbs, she is doing all she can to reverse universal school choice there, which has been wildly popular among parents. Mm. And she's doing so under the guise that there's no transparency, there's no accountability, and it's going to bankrupt the state of Arizona. Um, But it's basic math. Arizona spends on average $15,000 per student to educate, where these families are receiving less than half of that through an educational scholarship around the $7,000, $7,500 mark. And so it's enormous savings to the state. And there's even more accountability because the parents that come to these other schools, these other learning environments, the traditional public, they're not hostages there. They're not locked in. If they're not satisfied, if their child's not getting high quality academics in a good school environment, they can exit. And so 
there's more accountability um, and there's more transparency happening in those non-district public schools. Really the opposite of what she's trying to um, really use as a tactic to reverse universal school choice there because of her relationship with the teacher unions, the funding that has gotten her elected. Talking with Dr. Carrie Ingram, a senior fellow at Independent Women's Forum, also with the Discovery, still with the Discovery Institute as well, right? Yes, senior fellow there as well as director yeah. of their education center. Oh, that's super good. Uh, and the Discovery Center, along with the Independent Women's Forum, are two of my go-to conservative think tanks when it comes to uh, sound policy matters and restoring us to the the once great constitutional republic we were. Um you know, some other spinoff effects that I think of and I wanted to test because you actually I don't know how you got a doctor of education and master of education in higher education and came out where you did on the policy spectrum. I mean, it must have been before everything went woke and crazy. I don't know. Uh, but um, that's for another. It seems like the products of most higher education uh, education schools are are just totally lost and mired in wokeness these days, Carrie. I. That that has to break your heart, doesn't it? It does. And I was very intentional about where I selected to study, um, to be in an environment that was an outlier in higher ed uh, school of education um, that was not promoting woke ideologies. But they're hard to find yeah. um, today yeah. because they have well, taken over higher ed. Yeah. So let me ask you about some potential spinoffs. You mentioned that the performance in those states that have gone to universal choice, uh, you mentioned the economic benefits. Uh, one of the things, the Show Me Institute, who we're very fond of here at News Talk, and I think conservatives across Missouri keep, keep in touch with the Show Me Institute, uh, Susan Pendergrass there has done a lot of great work and her colleagues in, in chronicling how while enrollment has gone down because of demographics and population change, and we all know about how the replacement rate in America isn't what it needs to be and yada yada, but while enrollment has gone down in Missouri schools, per capita spending has gone up. And performance has gone down uh, overall. Of course, there's some bright spots, but there's also some very low spots. So to me, this would be another uh, argument to, to try to, you know, rein in crazy escalating costs, which I guess, what does that relate to more and more and more administrative uh, state burdens and bureaucracy? Because after all, that's what government types know to do, right? Government types through government uh, education uh, bureaucracies, they just have more administration administrators, more chiefs and fewer Indians. Is that true? That's absolutely true. And you can see that dating all the way back to the 70s, where you look at what was the student teacher ratio at the schools there? How many administrators to students? Um, and then fast forward to where those numbers are today. Um, yeah. They haven't just doubled, but in many cases, there's three, four times as many administrators per the same student enrollment or mm. smaller. And so what public education has done with their model, because it's government run, there's no accountability um, for using those funds wisely. Um, they've just continued to say when there's a deficit in student learning, it's not our performance. It's a lack of funding. It's a lack of personnel. Um, the claim is always that, you know, it's students who aren't doing their part. Students aren't coming prepared. Well, not all students came prepared in the 70s, you know, um, kids are kids, and, but we've got to have more money and more money and more money and more staffing and more staffing. And what you see today is it is so bloated with bureaucracy that it, the money, 50 percent of that money in on average across the nation 
in public education is not even reaching the classroom level. And so we've got to have a shift in this model. Um, And we see this in private schools, a lot of micro schools that are popping up now where they're able to produce a much higher quality product for student learning, the environment, opportunities for kids um, at such lower cost because they're stripping out all these layers of bureaucracy, which are just not needed. And they're focusing at the classroom level. What are the basics? They're back to teaching, you know, reading, writing, math, focus on phonics. And the results are incredible for far less and with far less uh, personnel needed. And I think uh, there's another spinoff of universal choice as I think about it. And I relate this to my anecdotal but very long experience with a dad who taught for over 40 years in one of the largest districts in uh, Missouri here in St. Louis. When, When students failed, not all the time, but very often, dad would comment, and I think teachers know this. I don't know if the data can ever capture it, but... There's a direct correlation, is there not, between parent involvement and expectations? Maybe not necessarily looking over the kid's shoulder every minute of every homework hour, but the expectation that you're going to perform, you're going to respect authority, you're going to attend school, absenteeism has gone crazy. And I would think with a universal choice model, by necessity, parents are going to have to have more skin in the game in many ways. I mean, maybe some more financial resources, but also, hey, wow, man, I better take another look now. I, I have choice. And how come my neighbor and their kid is doing so great and my kid's not doing so well? You know, maybe that gets parents more involved. Yes or no? Yes. You know, research has said for decades consistently, the number one influence of student learning and student success at school is parental involvement. Um, while the number one factor at school is the classroom teacher. But overall, it's the parent. Um, but sadly, what we've seen through the COVID school shutdowns and even continue today is parents are not welcome, not just on campus in public schools, but they're not welcome into the learning of their child. Um, mm-hmm. It's seen as, you know, the school's kids, this collective mentality of these are our kids. We know what's best. It's like, hold on, no, no, no. Moms and dads know what's best for those children. Right. They've been in their lives since birth. They're going to be there far longer than the end of the school year. But public schools are putting up a wall um, to not expose to parents what's happening in the classroom, yeah. let alone inviting them into the process. Um, and that is the roadblock that I see yeah. Um, yeah. for kids not learning is when That's parents great. are kept out of it. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Carrie Ingram, we thank you for your leadership in healthcare, in uh, education transformation and um, for, for getting the word out about the truth and how it does work when it's implemented. I hope that Missouri's legislators uh, will uh, will listen to this. The podcast will be up later. We're going to talk to a couple of them as the show rolls along. I think they may have been listening, in fact, and I appreciate your very, very sound and wise words. Carrie Ingram, Senior Fellow at Independent Women's Forum. Thank you very, very much. Have a great rest of your week you too thanks randy all right there she is that's a nice segue into one of the hot topics in the missouri legislature and in particular the missouri senate we'll be talking with second district senator and of course host of a talk show here on news talk stl can't wait to hear that nick schroer will be with us right after this and later on virginia cruda and then cindy o'laughlin keep it right here on news talk stl 1019 94.1 we
occupied with civil, principled statesmen and women have been overtaken by a small group of swamp creatures who all too often remind me more of my children than my colleagues. Those stripped to change the initiative petition process and education reform. They have called us everything from narcissists to charlatans, when all we want to do is pass the big red policy ideas that were promised to voters of this state every two years. Wow. Well, you know him well, 2nd District State Senator Nick Schroer and host of Stand and Fight here on News Talk STL Sunday evenings, joins us now to try to unpack this. Now, Nick, welcome to the program. First of all, you made national news by proposing that there be a dual, a dual uh, option for warring for warring factions in your own uh, in your own in your own caucus. What, uh, what, what? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, ultimately, when you know, you, you kind of heard some of those clips when you have leadership going to the Senate floor, calling names like children, and me being the youngest Republican in uh, in the Senate right now, it's appalling to me because these people ran great businesses. They were very successful in their private lives and they're coming in and just putting us back in time with a lack of civility, lack of decorum. And it's gotten so bad in the Senate. I you know, kind of wanted to grab the attention of our senators. This wasn't a proposed rule. This was just a draft. This is a draft of a rules change <laughs> that got sent on their desks, letting them know, look, if we're going to go that route uh, of eroding the Senate even further, this is what we're going to have to deal with, uh, you know, settling disputes by, by way of dueling. And, uh, you know, the Democrats went, you know what crazy over this thing and and it's kind of gotten a little comedic but uh ultimately we need to restore the decorum and restore uh civility so we can move this state forward in the right direction now nick as a as an attorney you know you've got sharp elbows and i promise the uh the audience the listeners that i'm going to ask tough questions from both sides because i think a lot of listeners share my sentiment nick that my gosh i know nick schroer i know bill eigel i know Bob Onder, I know Tim Jones. I also know Cindy Olaf. I know Caleb Rowden. All good people. We all want the same thing. And I think a lot of voters feel a little bit like maybe uh, parents when you when you see the kids fighting and the, you walk into a fight and all your kids are fighting and pretty soon you just want to put them all in the corner with a dunce cap and say, hey, time out, time out. Because I don't know who started the fight. I don't know where it went. You talked about name calling, Nick. I mean, I go back in time. Weren't Caleb and... And Cindy O'Loughlin called rhinos by some in the Freedom Caucus early on. So name calling's gone both ways, hasn't it? Yeah. And going into this, uh, you know, this is my second year in the Senate. And I said this last year and I've said it again this year is that, look, we need to be the professionals here. We need to be the actual statesmen, not the statesmen that, you know, some of the, the swamp likes to say right now is so sit on your hands. Don't be controversial. Don't don't handle the big things. Just everybody get along. No, well, I, I will say, let's be professionals. When you clock in at a business, all the drama stays outside and you get the job done. We work for the people in uh, the, the state house and in the state senate. When I walked in uh, this year, you could still feel the tension from years past. I mean, you've had individuals uh, running against their friends, you know, name calling, going on radio shows this year and stirring the pot again. And when I saw that happening, uh, I knew that we were going to be in dire straits once again. But yeah, ultimately, we need to, you know, put all of the past behind us, stop the emotions, stop the personality games and start focusing on policy. And that's where I think this this kind of uh, 
devolved into with a lack of communication, nobody knowing uh, from the, the Senate leadership down what the plan is going to be. And going on our sixth year now, you've got Planned Parenthood gathering millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to put late-term abortion, uh, abortion up to the point of birth even, onto our constitutions. We're, we're very clear that we need to address this initiative petition process. And if there was some communication, and I said this to Cindy, to Caleb, to everybody, if there was some communication, all of this would have been resolved. All right. Well, let's talk about the IP process. Um, that was in the first couple of weeks of the Senate. That was held hostage. I'm going to use that word uh, to gubernatorial appointments. Uh, Caleb Rowden had put gubernatorial appointments up on the social media thing. Hey, let's get this done. And uh, it, uh, allegedly, the Freedom Caucus said, well, we're not going to approve those. Well, and it happened. There was a lot of filibustering. We're not going to approve that slate of gubernatorial appointments until you bypass the traditional committee process and put it up to a vote, which I think is probably a little atypical. But the, what in the name of expediency? Right. So was there is there a substantive problem with the governor's appointments or is that just being used as a cudgel to expedite the IP process? Well, I will say there was one person in particular, and I'm not going to I'm not going to name who it is because there was some bad information. I think uh, all of the Freedom Caucus and there were even other Republicans that weren't associated, weren't affiliated with the Freedom Caucus that got some of this bad information uh, on one individual related to wanting to mask us up. And maybe they supported government shutdowns. Well, we dug into that in the interim when all of this was going on. Uh, we had, you know, a, a different coalition going into this to say, OK, well, we learned from the covid tyranny that we don't want that again uh, and found out that that was, in fact, bad information. So I think as of right now, there's there's nothing wrong with this slate of candidates. Uh, but again, you know, when uh, the, in the rules book, uh, the, there's there's rules that Caleb Rowden, Cindy Laughlin get to propose at the beginning of their tenure. And last year we proposed these rules in that rule book. There is a uh, an option for the committee of a whole. It's a committee. You can take testimony. You can take uh, people on, on both sides of, of the issue and bring it in front of the committee of a whole as a whole instead of a traditional committee where it's just, you know, a handful of members from the Republicans and Democrats. You've got the entire caucus. You've got the Republicans and Democrats there. Uh, and then it, it'll go through the regular process once again and then make its way to the floor. And I think, you know, from the discussion on the floor, and I finally did speak up on that topic. I said, look, it, it appears today that we don't have the votes to to take it this route. But hopefully, hopefully, since there is no communication here, nobody knows what the hell is going on. And we should with traditional leadership. You should know what the game plan is. Now we can actually get this to a committee, start debating these bills because it's been, what, four weeks into uh, into the process and we still don't have any bills. We still don't have any any guidance on where the leadership wants to go. I mean, heck, just a year ago, it was the top priority of leadership was getting initiative petition done. So I think ultimately we need to start communicating again. We need to start moving these policies that the people are fed up that we're not addressing, like tax reform, protecting our Second Amendment rights, ensuring that. Uh, abortion up to the point of birth is not going to be solidified in our constitution. Yeah. All right. Now, Nick, you know me to be a truth seeker, right? And, and yes, I think that what I'm, what I am seeing is that you, from what I, my read of the tea leaves is that you were not taken off of committees. You still have your parking spot. It seems as though you and maybe one or two other committee uh, caucus members may have a road in, in view of the fact that Caleb Rowden on Thursday, he, I, I would say some, 
his detractors would say he blinked. I would say in a gesture of good faith, he referred all of the bills to committee, which was one of the requests of the caucus. The gubernatorial appointments still remain un, un uh, cleared, unconfirmed. Is there? Could you and others from quote the other side see a way in the next week of this Missouri Senate to begin to break down the barriers, settle down the heat, break the logjam, and begin to get some things lubricated? Partly through the regular process, maybe once in a while through another committee of the whole, whatever. Can you see a way forward at this point or do you just see more contention? Well, you know, I'd say a week ago and I shared some of this with you uh, in private, you know, when you were trying to ask what in the heck's going on a week ago uh, when this all came to a head and there was no communication, which which brought us to that point. I started negotiating. I started going to all of the different sides, the Republicans, the Democrats, everybody for five and a half hours negotiating in terms that I spoke to leadership about terms that leadership gave me and say what you will about Bill Eigel. You know, I've heard some individuals say, Oh, he's got a hot head. He's never going to, going to consent to anything. No, he's, he's been the one traditionally over the past two weeks saying yes to all of these deals to move us forward. Um, and when those terms that leadership gave us get thrown back in our face to say, no, you're terrorists, we're not going to negotiate with you. When all this was is, OK, now that we know where all the, the chips are going to lay, let's move these bills. And this was last week. Let's move these bills. The governor's slate will move forward and we can have somebody that everyone agrees is a is a solid, upstanding person. Andrew Koenig, he was my sponsor on the or my Senate cohort in uh, House Bill 126 in 2019, everybody knows that he's going to get the job done and put policy above politics. All of a sudden, that gets thrown in our face. This week, we were close to a deal again, and then that Senate handler gets changed to somebody that was never part of the discussion. And it, it appears to me, with all of the negotiating I've done in the legal realm, all of the negotiating I've done in the political realm, this is a, a moving of the goalposts. And ultimately, what happens when your word is not your bond, things blow up. And that's the that's the inside baseball here, is that there's a lack of trust, lack of communication. And if we can all get on the same page and get in the same room and iron out some of these details rather than moving the goalposts at the last second, I think, yeah, ultimately we can start moving this state forward. But th- these personalities hate each other so much. And I, I, I don't understand why, because look, all of these people that are claiming somebody ran against them or a coalition ran against them, you won. You're there in the Senate. Now start doing the work. Don't, don't let your personalities get in the way of doing what the people want you to do. Uh, and we were very close to another deal this past Thursday. And, you know, I was appalled to see that, you know, we've had senators in the past calling for the assassination of Donald Trump. We've had other members in the past going through ethics committees because they've uh, allegedly slept with interns. Not of those people got expelled from the body as a whole. And then we hear from the Associated Press that our leader was calling for the expulsion, which that kind of pumped the brakes on everything. And that's where I think uh, I'm not sure where we're going to go. I I know that there are sincere, sincere uh, efforts to try and get initiative petition done, uh, defund of Planned Parenthood, get education reform. That's on the calendar. And get that done. But I mean, even last week, some of these, some of these tactics that were, that were done by leadership, putting the FRA and you know how controversial the FRA has been locking down the Senate in the past. That was put right in front of the education reform last week. And when all I needed was a confirmation that we would put that on the informal calendar, guaranteeing that we're not going to go to that. 
all of the communications blew up. And then days later, I was told by leadership, no, we just moved that bill in front of education reform to screw with you guys. Well, that's not what leadership does. Leadership will bring people together and actually figure out the things we can agree on. So, yeah, to your to your question, there are efforts. There are efforts to try and solidify this thing and start focusing on policy. But it seems the goalposts continue to move. And I don't know why. Okay, we talk with Nick Schroer. That's a bit of a newsmaker. I mean, can we quote you on that, that you were told by leadership? And if you want to specify who, that'd be better that the FRA was moved in front of education choice to quote, screw with you guys. Yeah. I mean, you can quote you. you, I will stand by that. And that's stuff that I'm going to be reporting uh, tomorrow on stand and fight because it is frustrating when you go into these rooms and you're trying to negotiate in good faith to put policy above all of this politics and, and personality BS. and, And that's what I'm told. I mean, there was a deal when, and again, all of the leadership was on these text messages. These these are text messages that look, if this does blow up and, and somebody wants to call me a liar for this, this is provable. There were people in the room with me, with leadership. And you know me, I'm not the one that to, to try to poke and poke the bear and call names out in public. Yeah. Uh, but look, if somebody wants to refute that and say that that never happened, then yeah, we can go, you know, tit for tat and, and focus on what the truth truly is. But yes, leadership did tell me this past week after all of the, the committee uh, chairmanship pulling and then the parking spot stuff, we could have solidified this deal over the weekend. If we would have just been told, Hey, no, 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 we're not going to go to the FRA. We're going to go to education reform. We'll get the slate of candidates passed. We'll sit down on that. We'll refer all the bills. We're not going to go to the FRA. Well, when they couldn't guarantee me that, it further blew up. It further eroded. And then I'm told this week, yeah, we just moved the FRA in front of education reform to screw with you guys. We never had any intent to bring that bill up. That, to me, is a slap in the face. Wow. Well, I yeah, I mean, I'm going to ask Cindy about that. I'm, I'm taking notes here, and Cindy will be on at 810. And I'm sure that the conversation will probably be carried on beyond this, uh, maybe on these airwaves, probably definitely on these airwaves and in others, and as well as in the social media. Um, did Cindy O'Loughlin call for Bill's expulsion? Do we have documentary evidence of that? I, I, I don't know that she said that publicly. Has that been alleged? Is that a private statement? <laughs> Well, I was uh, I was in the middle of negotiations this past week when uh, when I heard someone uh, bring Cindy to the floor. I think it was Senator Eichel brought Cindy to the floor, and I looked on social media uh, as it was referred that she spoke right across the the Senate chamber in the Senate lounge, where a lot of the bills are heard. There, I guess there was a discussion with the Associated Press and different members of the press, and. To, to miss, I'm just going to paraphrase. She indicated that there's, you know, 20 something votes to expel somebody. Uh, so Senator Eigel called her on the floor and said, look, what, what are you referring to? Are you calling for my expulsion? And again, to, to paraphrase, she said, yeah, basically she would support it if it came to the floor. She would support uh, expelling Senator Eigel if it came to the floor. And I was giving her the benefit of the doubt when I saw the the social media post. It's like, okay, maybe there, maybe there was somebody in the Senate uh, press corps was asking about the process for expelling a member. Maybe they're trying to, you know, further divide us, the media. I mean, who would think that the media would ever do something like that? But no, when she came to the floor and, and kind of doubled down on that, it was a, you know, hand in the face sort of moment for me that I, I don't, I don't understand how we can get to this point where you hate somebody so much 
that, you know, when, when I had individuals that tried to kick me off the ballot and I fought it in the court all the way to the Supreme Court and I won, I didn't take that vengeance and try to remove them from office because I despise them. People that filibustered my bills uh, that just this past year and effectively killed my bills because they filibustered it the entire time I was in the Senate. I haven't called for them to be expelled. And just because somebody is disagreeing with you, rather than reach across the aisle, communicate with them and say, how can we come together like a true leader would? It's devolved into this. And look, I I know Cindy. Cindy supported me before she ever got into the Senate. And this isn't the Cindy that I know. I mean, this is somebody who's been fueled by emotions. And yes, to your to your earlier point, there has been a lot of name calling before my time in the Senate. There has been a, a, a steady decline of decorum since my time in the Senate. But what, what should leaders do? Stand up, put us in the right direction, start focusing on policy. That's all we've been asking for. Let's move past all of this garbage. And when, when it hit the fan on uh, last Thursday, that's when I kind of realized, I, I don't know which way this Senate is going to go this year, but we've got a lot of policies that need to be addressed for the people of Missouri. So I'm hoping we can. All right, Nick, uh, strong words and really appreciate your transparency. I can't wait to talk to Cindy about these things. Um, I think I'm going to I'm just going to offer my as a good conservative friend and as a voter who doesn't know about the weeds, we don't know about the smoke filled lounges. That's where a lot of this business gets done. I pray that both sides are able to, in a metaphorical sense, blink and 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 maybe sacrifice a little ego and everyone gets the win. When the policies get through, that's my prayer. Well, doctor, Thank you very doctor, much. You sound, you sound a lot like me. And, you know, that's what I've been asking right. for. And hopefully, hopefully we can get it done. All right, brother. And we'll listen very, very carefully to stand and fight tomorrow, 8 to 10. Thank you, my friend. Good luck. I appreciate it. God bless you. All right. Same to you. There he is, Nick Schroer. Wow. Some earth-shaking stuff there. FRA moved in front of education to, quote, screw with you guys? Interesting. We'll be asking Cindy Laughlin the, t- the tough questions at 810. Maybe Virginia Cruda has a thought about the infighting going on. We'll see what happens on that front when we touch base with her in just a few minutes here on the Randy Tobler Show. Thanks for being here. Boy, it breaks your heart after you talk with Carrie Ingram and about education choice, Virginia Cruda. And all of the things that other states are doing with the same political setup that we have in Missouri. And these things are just log jammed because of what appear to be personal animosities. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I we're going to talk to Cindy O'Loughlin off the, after this. But I, I guess you've been watching this, even though you live in the People's Republic of Illinois. You've been keeping an eye on what's been going on in the hmm. GOP side in the Senate. Sure. A, a little bit. What, what, what I, I would say there are a couple couple of factors in play. The first being that in the state of Missouri, it's very difficult to win outside of St. Louis or Kansas City if you have a D behind your name. And the average person with political aspirations is aware of that. And so some of them wear R's on their jackets, but don't necessarily believe the same things. And so you see a little bit more disparity from Republican to Republican in Missouri because there are some who are using the label to get elected as opposed to because that's what they believe. So the issue, this doesn't do much for for the immediate logjam that you're facing, but 
people in Missouri and in in hard uh, hardcore red states all over the country. Florida is no exception. Um, you need to be very careful who you're putting forward in your primaries because you know going into the general election it's going to be uncontested or the Democrat is going to be running just for a little notoriety but not because they actually expect to get elected. These are things that, and then you end up, if, if, you, if you elect in your primary a Republican who is probably kind of a Democrat, you're going to get a Democrat in the Senate because that's who's going to make it through. It doesn't matter what the letter next to their name is. If the policies that they're supporting and pushing align more with the left yeah. than the right. And so this, know, is, this is actually a good reason, a good, a good time to be talking about it because your primary is in August. So you need to be thinking about that going into the summer and saying, are we vetting these candidates who are going to be running in this primary? Because this is the, the election that's going to determine who is going to be in Jeff City next year. Virginia, you know, there, there's another dynamic here that I think we need to recognize. I mean, we're, yeah. we're in a very strongly, I mean, hard red echo chamber here. Let's be honest about it. In, right. On this station and in conservative talk radio, Caleb Rowden was elected by just a handful of votes in what is now going to be when he's terms out at the end of this session he's running for secretary of state uh-huh. that will be a democrat in that that in redistricting boone county is now the entirety of that district and i guarantee you that's going to be a democrat seat so he is in fact a representative of what is turning to a blue sp- spot but i can also speak for i know his and cindy o'laughlin's ideologies there is they're as Republican as you could say and as conservative, and they want the same things. I can tell you, Caleb Rowden wants education choice more than anything else. Well, and I say that metaphorically. Okay, listen, it's there's, there's a little bit of a rural uh, suburban thing going on, too. For instance, this FRA thing. The FRA, mm-hmm. the listeners are, are asking, what is FRA? That's the Federal Reimbursement Allowance. What that amounts to is, like states do with, with roads, the more that the state commits in, quote, matching funds, the more federal money comes back to Missouri that is going to D.C. Similarly, it's same same kind of a thing. Missouri hospitals tax themselves and put that into a Medicaid fund that then maximizes the money coming in from D.C. for Medicaid funding. And since Medicaid was expanded by the voters through a constitutional amendment, and it does really support both urban and rural hospitals. Rural, were it not for the redistribution that occurs through the taxation of Missouri hospitals, self-taxation, bringing in money from D.C. and then redistributing it so that rural hospitals can stay alive. Rural hospitals in Missouri would be more decimated than they are. I can tell you that from personal experience. And you know what's holding that up? The, the Freedom Caucus and others want to make sure that there's no possibility of any Planned Parenthood funding at all that is relating to Medicaid funding. Now, we can argue that all day long, but that's one of those issues where unless there maybe is a little give, Missouri's rural hospitals are existentially threatened. And I don't think most Missourians know that. So it's well, easy right. if you're... Here's here's my question, and and this is um, I'm going to put this to you in hard terms because I know you work with the rural hospitals, and I know that this is an issue that is important to you as a physician and just as someone who has experience with this. But so 
think about think about the issue surrounding uh, the transgender ideology. If you believe that it is for, first and foremost an ideology, not a medical condition, that it is a social contagion more than anything else. Yeah. And and somebody asks you the question, well, what do you do if your own child comes out and identifies as trans or, or whatever? If you change your opinion because it's your child, then is your opinion based in fact? Be, or is, in, is your opinion based in what should happen? So it, what, what I'm asking is, so if this were a policy that, like a redistribution of money and and taxing so that you can get federal dollars to go a certain way. Is that yeah. something that you would support if it were not keeping rural oh, yeah. hospitals alive? Yeah. Or is it something right. no, that... this is not... Be- no, no, I guess no let me be clear on that. The rural... Ho- no, I'm, I'm related... No, Virginia, I'm relating that to the to the to the rural, if you will, semi-rural Caleb and Cindy O'Laughlin's of the world and the yeah. urban suburban Freedom Caucus members of the world concentrated. Well, I mean, there's some semi-rural ones as well, Denny Hoskins and others. But I think it has to do with overall the state would have a larger Medicaid expenditure if it weren't for garnering that money, because a lot of that money goes to rural, to to urban hospitals, too. It's not just rural. So you well, see, no, there are some rural urban d- dynamics as well. So this is about no, the economics I, I agree of with that. What, what I'm asking is, do you support pushing for more federal government involvement because it's a specific issue no, when no, you no, wouldn't no, if no. it were a not, not that specific no, I, issue? No, I, I play the rules as they are. Yeah. Look, Republicans realized we were idealistic in 2020 and everyone wanted to vote on Election Day. How did that get us? We have to play the rules as they are. The, the voters of America want government involvement in their health care. The voters of Missouri wanted to expand Medicaid because they wanted government involvement in Medicaid. Right. OK. okay. So if those I, are the I rules, let's that. play but them well. What I'm what I'm asking is it's still not smart to draw a line where you could have. Yeah that federal funding then going to support abortion or support Planned Parenthood. Do you, do you stop having right. that moral line that can't be crossed because you want to affect how the money's going to be spent? And, and no, I don't, I, I hear you clearly. I hear you. There clearly. are certain I lines it, that, but, and I realize, you know what? I, I am kind of in an urban area, but that doesn't mean I, I don't think that where I live has a huge impact because it's, Honestly, I don't live in Missouri at all. I have no impact whatsoever. This does not impact me at all, except for watching it go down and thinking, okay, well, and and we have the opposite problem in in Illinois. You can't get elected unless there's a D next to your name. Uh, So (laughs) you see how wise words we're the the mirror to see how it all rolls out. Yeah, I know. I agree. But look, at the end of the day, um, We've there has to be some unanimity. And I mean, I just think that the voters need to continue to hold their respective legislators feet to the fire and say, look, we expect you to get some some stuff. And and I will say this, and this applies to the Trump voters and it applies to the Republicans who are warring with each other in different legislatures. We have spent so much time trying to figure out how to beat the Democrats, beat Joe Biden, beat beat Democrats and, and and actually win. And now that we, it looks like Trump is going to be the nominee and it looks like we have some things settled down. You got some Trump supporters who are busy trying to police who can support him now. 
I no, hear you. I hear you. You should hey, we be letting run. people into, into the tent, not trying to police who's coming in. There you go. I got it. Thanks, Virginia. Appreciate it. Love all your analysis. Sure. Talk to you next weekend. All right. Cindy O'Laughlin coming up. Stay there.